Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, uh, one one reason why I always wanted to talk to you is because people have shown me that that office. Uh, I guess it's a parody, or it's a what would you call it? It's yeah, it's kind of a an homage or a parody. I mean, it takes <laughs> that that structure of mockumentary, but instead of yeah, uh, you know, office politics and shenanigans it's kind of translating that to uh, yeah. the church yeah to a church setting what, um so so whenever people mention that to me and i also did something similar for rem like um when i after i got here we made a little video i don't know if you remember there's an episode where michael scott shows the corporate people this video video he made called the faces of scranton or something mm-hmm. and he does this weird, awkward zoom in on people's faces and goes up to people without just with no respect for boundaries, and creates a super awkward you know video. But 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 it's still an endearing like you know oh, oh look at Stanley look at so and so and so I did something like that for with our EM people and um, and I thought oh, I want to talk to Paul and like listen to like what. What what was on his mind when when he was create, making his video, and whether you're still as big a Office fan today as you were then? Yeah, at the time I was, and of course it was. Uh, I, I think when we had filmed it, the Office was still on the air and kind of in its wow. heyday. Um, a lot of my huh. like during my ministry, um, kind of one of my unspoken responsibilities was was media. Uh, so I did a, a lot of different kinds of uh, videos and, and productions. Um, so for Christmas, instead of kind of uh, the usual uh, Christmas pageant or play, yeah. uh, like more my sensibilities was, well, why don't we yeah. try filming something? Uh, yeah. So I took a format of a show that I, I enjoyed, The Office, yeah. with that kind of humor and sensibilities, but put it into uh, yeah. a church setting with kind of uh, a bumbling Michael Scott-esque pastor figure and then different kinds of personalities on, yeah. on staff interacting and tr- you know try to have uh you know an encouraging ultimately mm-hmm. up- uplifting message a- at the end yeah um w- did you play the role of michael scott in the or? no that was um another church member at the okay. time i kind okay. of uh you know th- there there was a script yeah i had um, yeah you wrote the for, script for a long time yeah I just had kind of screenwriting or oh, wow. you know, filmmaking aspirations. So this is one way to exercise that. So you know, wrote a script with uh, huh. a particular member of the EM in mind at the time. I just felt that you know, his, his timing and his humor would be a, a good fit. So um, the, the, the role for him wasn't that, that much of a stretch. Like his personality is, is, is pretty goofy and it ended up working well. And then yeah. other roles, um, just uh, recruited different people in the church who yeah. were interested and... Uh, that's so cool. It's cool because, um, I don't know, for me, doing stuff like that for church, it always had this sense of, oh, you just kind of, whether it's skits or uh, presentations, right? Especially if you're sharing it with KM. It's almost this obligatory thing you just have to do cause, just because you're asked to do it. 
But when you give it a theme like that, like the office theme or something like that, and you, you, you bust out your camera and write a script and all that stuff, I feel like that, that kind of level of intentionality makes it, makes it feel different, makes it more enjoyable and meaningful and memorable. And I do want to congratulate you because it is one of those few things I, I still hear about. I still hear people talk about. And um, uh, I don't know if you knew that people really like re- still recall that. No, and, no. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was when I was still on staff. That was over 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> and I, I guess the circles yeah. I ran in after that, uh, yeah. yeah um, I, I don't know who's still talking about it. Like, I think last time Eddie was the one talk, who told me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we were just hanging out and and. Yeah, he John, was on, John, on staff at the time. You're an Office fan, right? I'm like, yeah. Like, Do you know Paul Jung? Have you seen the video he made? I think he was the last person that told me. Um, but just when I first came uh, to NCA, um, and and that's when there were still like early members of NCA still around. Mm-hmm. Um, they also told me about it. Um, mm-hmm. How long ago was did you come on board? So I came to NCA eight years ago. Okay, two thousand fifteen. That's when, um, yeah, Pastor Bilson um, had me come on board and basically relaunched the EM at that point. So I remember coming here with um, my wife and our son. My wife was like super pregnant at that point with our second. Um, and came and we're yeah we're over there at the children's former children's chapel on the other side and um, I think there were like a handful of people there at at the first Sunday uh, a couple of KM folks came for moral support kind yeah. of and they were so apologetic they were so nice about it. they were so apologetic they're like oh I was Chandosanim at the, at that point Chandosanim sorry you know so small and but actually. Lynn and I, I still remember, we were so encouraged that there were like more than five people because we were just coming up from uh, Gainesville, Florida. Okay. Where we're trying to like, uh, the goal there was to gather some college students for a potential uh, PCA kind of church gathering in that area near Mm -hmm. UF. And it was really hard to consistently gather with a handful of students for Sunday worship because they already had either other places they go or um, weren't interested in the something so small. Um, and there, was, there were some Sundays that were just really small. And, and uh, the last Sunday where a lot of students were already gone home for break, it literally was like a family worship with just me and my wife and kids. Um, so when we first came here and there were like more than five people, we're like, what a great start. That's that's how we felt when we first came. Anyway, that's yeah. And you were you were in Orlando before that, right? Right. I remember yeah. when first meeting you, you were serving in yeah. the Orlando area. Yeah, yeah. I was attending seminary there mm-hmm. and doing first start doing youth and then college, and during the last year I was there was in Gainesville, Florida. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and you were here during what time period um, uh pretty much since the inception uh wow. of the church um yeah it, it's kind of convoluted uh a, a little messy as often a lot of these stories are but yeah. um 
I moved to Atlanta, I think in 92, and eventually mm. settled at uh, a, a Korean Presbyterian church that's uh, hmm. off Buford Highway. It's uh, called, I, I think it might still be there, Young Knock Presbyterian Church uh, huh. off yeah. of uh, Oak Cliff Road. And what it has. Is this still there? Yeah, I, I believe so. The okay. building, I think, is still there. The church okay. might still be there. Gotcha. <laughs> Probably take a drive afterwards and, and just see. Old time sake. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what happened, uh, we had been at that church for a while, and mm. the, the senior pastor there was uh, uh, considering retirement. So he was retiring and then called another senior pastor to take his place. But I think what had happened was, uh, I'm not sure if I can un- unpack everything, but I think the senior pastor... Uh, reconsidered his decision to retire. Uh, okay. So he just continued on being senior pastor. And mm. so the senior, the senior pastor uh, and his family that he had called, I, th- I think they moved from California, were mm. kind of left stranded and without a job. Uh, and around that time, mm. uh, I, I think my, my mom and brother had started attending New Church of Atlanta, okay. which, had, uh, you know, Pastor Bill had just moved here from, uh, I think, Texas or Houston. Houston, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and settled here and started the church. And, you know, at the time, I think they were meeting in a a hotel. Mm, And so mm. eventually, I think Pastor Bill, he was fairly young in in his mid-30s at the time, you know, wasn't confident about leaving the church. And how old were you? Uh, College age. Okay. Uh, So I was probably like, you know, 18 or so, 18, 19 around at the time. Uh, So Pastor Bill had called this uh, others, you know, this kind of displaced yeah. orphan senior pastor to uh, lead uh, NCA. Hmm. Um, and this was before NCA had a permanent location. So mm-hmm. I said, started attending church at that time. Uh, uh, and those early years, eventually they uh, they were meeting at the, the funeral home on near Winter's Chapel. Hmm. And, you know, the, when you get off at the exit for Amweiler, there's mm-hmm. kind of that unused funeral home on that access road. That's where... NCA, I think that's where their first permanent location was. Um, huh. I thought it was the one where they had that fire up in the... Oh, that, uh, that came the, after. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that was after, but okay. first it was in this funeral home by the quick trip that's uh, uh, at, at the, at the okay. overpass here. Gotcha. We were there for a while. Wow. Um, huh. And then I can't remember if... Um, yeah, it must have been where they moved to that location up north, which yeah. then burned down, and then uh, moved here to this to <laughs> yeah. this campus. Yeah, uh, right, right. Yeah, so I've been here. Uh, yeah, even before wow. Pastor Bill was was wow. a senior pastor. How how does it how does it feel to just come back here and just yeah yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. I mean, it's great yeah. to see how. How much you know the church is still thriving and growing and, mm-hmm. and continuing on so it's good to see that yeah but uh yeah it's 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 crazy to think i've been uh, you know at nca for almost yeah. 30, like almost 30 years ago is when i first wow. started attending wow yeah you're definitely the most veteran nca person yeah, I, I, I may I've be. I've met. Uh, <laughs> I, and I didn't even know. Uh, that's so cool. Uh, so before you moved to Georgia, uh, where, where, were, where were you raised? Where were you born? I was born in uh, Massachusetts uh, in a suburb, maybe 45 minutes uh, north, northeast 
uh, of, of Boston. Of Boston. Yeah, close to the New Hampshire border. So I was born in that area huh. uh, and moved down here uh, at the end of... Uh, seventh or eighth grade or in the middle of seventh or eighth grade it was wow. in the middle of eighth grade and um i think early okay. 92. would you still call that home or is home georgia now mm, i when i first moved yeah i still considered myself like a, a northerner had uh you know i rejected uh, the the south and everything it, it stood for. Um, you rejected the south. Yeah, because yeah. uh, you know I was yeah. um, eighth grade, I think thirteen years old at the time, mm-hmm. and the reason for our move was you know my parents divorced, so I was going through all kinds of mm-hmm. messy emotions, and mm-hmm. you know moving down to the south after having lived up in New England my whole mm-hmm. life was uh, a big change that yeah. I did not take too well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely now, yeah, I consider myself a, a southerner. Georgia is my home. I've been here. Okay. Um, most of my life at at this point. Yeah, yeah. How did you meet your wife? We met at uh, Georgia Tech. We okay. Um, I was uh, yeah. I went to Georgia Tech uh, originally uh, as a mechanical engineering student. After mm-hmm. a year of calculus, I thought, nope, this is not for me. Uh, and uh, changed majors to industrial design. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's two years younger than me, and mm-hmm. she was coming up. Um, like through that program, and I convinced her to join uh, uh, the same major, industrial design, because she was undecided at that point. Uh, you guys just met like in a classroom at one no, day? No, um, she likes to tell the story. I'm kind of a little <laughs> embarrassed and, and cringe over it, but we, we met at the, the gym there, and um, you know I have to disclose this. I was I was break dancing with uh, no with my crew. Uh, you can no call it way. a crew, and she's uh, she's Chinese, uh, but. She was playing volleyball with the Korean Student Association, uh, so she, you know, it was kind of fell in with them and did a lot of activities with them. Despite being uh, Chinese, they were very welcoming of her. And uh-huh. a, a mutual friend introduced us uh, at the gym. You know, that's got to know her. Found out she was in, uh, you know, the design program, but undecided. And you know, as uh, wait, so sh- she's playing volleyball. You were yeah. breakdancing over here, yes. and your friends just like, hey, you guys should just connect. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, so I, you know, he was kind of my uh, uh, unknown wingman at the point. He was trying to, to, wow. to set us up. So, I, I, you know, I believe he, at the time, was the um, way I knew him was we, we both attended uh, NCA. Uh, oh, okay. So we knew of each, uh, each other and uh, gotcha. you know, we all went to tech and somehow kind of crossed paths down there. Gotcha. But your wife was at a different church. She was not going to church oh, okay. at, at the time. Okay, uh, you know she was from. Uh, she was born and raised near Savannah. And came up here for school. Okay, and didn't have uh, a church she regularly uh-huh. attended. Uh-huh. You know, so as we got to know each other, I invited yeah. her to NCA. NCA. And, you know, and since then, you know, she'd been she's been wow. attending here also. Wow. That's so funny. Do you still break dance? No, it's uh, <laughs> it'd be hazardous to, to my health and, and foolish. So, but, but you never. I mean, does that ever go? Do you lose that? Do you, does that go away? Yeah, I think with other, like all kinds of like physical activities, if you don't uh, keep up with it, it, it is. Did that did that start in Boston? I mean, in Massachusetts, or did you pick that up? No, at uh, at Georgia Tech, there was kind of. Uh, 
an extracurricular class. It's you know not an official class that was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know you could take swing dancing or or break dancing or, or pottery or something like that. And you know there was a, a pretty you know well known uh, hip hop graffiti artist break dancer. Uh, he's he's got a who's a who was a Georgia Tech student. He was not a student, but he oh. um, he was around the same age as me, and you know he you know, taught classes, you know, I guess they paid him. Uh, on campus. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and you just, you saw that one day and you just wanted to go and check it out. I think so. I, I had a friend who's big into hip hop culture and b-boying, break dancing. And wow. he'd heard that, you know, this, you know, pretty well-known guy was uh, going to teach a class. So, you know, we all signed up and uh, that, did that, that for just, a season. That's so, ref- I mean, it's refreshing because it, it, it breaks all the stereotypes of Georgia Tech yeah. engineering students. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's awesome. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. so I think it was just a lot of awkward, gangly kind of uh, tech students trying their best to, to, to B-boy. Uh, <laughs> that's great. So I'm sure, <laughs> I imagine must have been kind of frustrating for the instructor because, you know, he's this very accomplished uh, B-boy and break dancer, very, very skilled. Uh-huh, and I think he's, uh-huh. he's still B-boying, he's still doing... Wow. Uh, graffiti art and murals. He's got wow. a pretty big following on on Instagram. So huh. He's still immersed what's in that his, what's culture. What's his name? Um, his his tag, or he goes by Totem. Totem. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, I don't think I've heard of it. I'll check him out. <laughs> um, that's so cool. That's so cool. Did that come in handy? Like, because you and then you later did children's ministry. Mm-hmm. Did you also do youth? Or no, uh, I was uh, in in my time at NCA. I was always. Uh, it's always the children's education ministry. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I mean, did I, that... I did help out and assist at different youth events and stuff, but uh, there were always other youth staff members. You didn't teach the kids breakdancing at any point? Um, I don't think formally. Uh, I, I can't remember. I mean, there, there were times, you know, where... There are not I, a lot of Korean parents seeking yeah. that out. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I would use those skills, like, during you... retreats or something, during a skit. Uh, can you please teach my children breakdancing? Uh, it's something you will not hear Korean parents ask you to do. But I, I did feel, yeah, it, it was a point of connection with, with some of the students, uh, mm, you know, at, mm. at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so funny. Um, thanks for sharing that. But but so going back a little bit, you you went and studied industrial engineering, industrial design. Indu- oh, sorry, industrial design. Um, and I mean that sounds a lot more like a creative artistic field than a technical uh, math related. I mean you you started off with that. Mm-hmm. So how did that sh- uh, switch happen? Yeah, as I've alluded to. Uh, the engineering disciplines at tech are very calculus and, and math heavy. Right, right, and right. after taking a year of calculus classes, you know, um, you know, I felt like I, I did pretty well in high school and excelled yeah. and, you know, graduated near the top of my class and going to tech, uh, I think for a lot of people probably share this experience. It was kind of a rude awakening, uh, huh. with just how rigorous, uh, you know, the, the math, programs are, wow. are there. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I ended up getting a C in Calc 2. It's like the first C I had ever gotten in my life. And I was like, no, I, mm. I do not like this. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And at the time, another friend, uh, he had um, gone into the industrial design program. 
uh, and his, his pitch was, it's not as much calculus, it's not as much math, and you just right. make toys, build toys and games all, all day. Uh, so it, it was definitely, um, and industrial di- design is essentially like physical product design, um, huh. everything entailed with that. So uh, wow. famous industrial designers are like Johnny Ive, who worked at Apple, a lot of the yeah. big products like yeah. the iMac were... His, uh, so computer, consumer product design, car design, shoe design. I have a friend who's an industrial designer from yeah. tech. He works yeah. at Nike in the basketball division now. So it's wow. pretty, a, a pretty wide spectrum yeah. uh, of, of products and what, what it entails. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, the, the lack of calculus uh, was um, very appealing, but also it was a more... <laughs> Uh, creative art focused discipline yeah uh, so I had been you know artistic uh, mm. growing up mm. and enjoyed mm. drawing mm. And, you know those kinds of endeavors so I, it, it was a good fit hmm. and you're you're still doing that now or, or you've been doing that for some time yeah after um, I was on staff here at NCA uh, you know went through that whole process of being you know, in turn, you know, Chondo, Kangdo, yeah. Moksa. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about, so, I mean, just how did seminary happen? Because you went from Georgia Tech and you found industrial design and you're like, this is a better fit. But how do you go from that to... Yeah, that's the- also another long story. So uh, <laughs> while I was at Tech, um, you know, I, I landed a great internship with, uh, you know, the inventor of the super soaker, Dr. Lonnie Johnson. He's local to Atlanta. And uh, I ended up working at at his company. Oh, it sounds so familiar. I... He's he's done like AMAs on on Reddit. Uh, so he's a, a African American scientist, formerly worked at NASA at JPL. And while there, he through you know one of his uh, activities here, he invented the super soaker using some technology oh, that was. Did he go on Shark Tank or no? Uh, he, he may have been on Shark Tank. Okay. I'm not sure. As a guest. Um, but uh, uh, during college and after college, I was working for his company, and they yeah. did a lot of stuff with Nerf and Super Soaker at the time. Okay. So it's like, okay. you know, I, I went to tech and had a job designing, you know, toys all day. So it seemed pretty ideal, uh, yeah. and I thought that was my career path for a while. Mm-hmm. But then while I was there, 9-11 happened, and hmm. um, like many companies— uh, you know, after that, you know, finances were tight, mm. um, and I, I was laid off uh, at mm. that point. Mm. Um, so for two years, uh, you know, I thought I would, you know, bounce back uh, pretty quickly. But mm. you know, the market at the time was uh, very tight, mm. uh, and it, you know, for two years, I couldn't find another design position that was mm. local. Mm-hmm. So a- along with that. Uh, I became more involved with the children's ministry at church. There was another intern there. Um, I think he was, he wasn't even an intern. He was more just kind of an office assistant, but Mm. we were around the same age and he kind of saw that I was idle and, you know, we got closer and he pushed me to uh, be more involved or or volunteer with the children's ministry. Mm. So there's lots of threads. So at the time, the children's ministry was being headed up by Pastor Kenneth Bay who you may know, he was yeah. the missionary who was North know, Korea. in prison in North Korea for several years. Uh, Crazy. He was here in the early 2000s at NCA uh, leading the children's ministry. So I 
got uh, involved and, you know, he mentored me for a point and it was while serving in children's ministry and going through all this, uh, felt, you know, a conviction and uh, a call that, oh, maybe I should do more of this. Mm, so I wasn't mm. completely sold on the seminary path, but I just thought, you know, I'll, I'll commit more of my time to this. Yeah. Seeing that as an unemployed uh, and while working under, serving under Pastor Kenneth, uh, yeah. really, um, you know, bought into and, and saw the vision was for he, was children's he, ministry. Was uh, he considering or involved with North Korea missions at that point? Or Not at that oh, point. No. That okay. was afterwards, gotcha. after he left Atlanta. Uh, after he left Atlanta, he got more yeah. he, more involved with the okay. the missions to to North Korea. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, but it happened uh, um, through you know <clears throat> internal calling and external confirmation of different mm. people. You know, mm. they kind of pushed and nudged me towards full time ministry, mm. Uh, mm. and so I. I after you know much prayer and, and deliberation and encouragement from others, mm-hmm. uh, decided to uh, enter seminary and mm-hmm. and you know the church here supported me and mm-hmm. I, I came on board as a pastoral intern. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I came on board as an intern, uh, Pastor Kenneth and his family uh, abruptly left. So I was left there. I think I was in my mid twenties mm. and just an intern and uh, just started seminary. Yeah. Just started. Like I don't, I had not even started seminary yet. Um, okay. but yeah, I was left in charge of the entire children's ministry. Wow. Um, wow. And did you sign up at enroll at RTS Atlanta at the time? Yep. And at okay. that time they did not have, um, their campus. They were still meeting out of uh, Church of the Apostles. Oh, okay. So while I was there, they had become accredited, and then <sighs> after I graduated was when they moved on to their, uh, you know, West the, Atlanta campus. The, okay, yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, as you were doing seminary, doing full-time children ministry, um, did you feel like your your sense of call to either that particular ministry or just pastoral ministry in general being more like affirmed or confirmed over time or was there this sense of like is this is this something God is calling me to do for this season but I'm not sure if this is a lifelong call what was going on in your mind during that time uh at the time uh you know growing up I had no designs to enter pastoral ministry, mm. um, you know, no intentions. Yeah. And, you know, through that, you know, those those two years I was unemployed and also serving more actively at the church. Um, mm. Yeah, that, that, that sense of calling grew and, mm. and definitely mm. was confirmed. And mm. um, I think, you know, at the time and all throughout my time uh, at NCA, you know, my strong conviction was that... Uh, children's ministry is what I'm called to, and mm-hmm. I'll continue to do it as, uh, as as long as possible. And I, and I still hold those convictions about uh, the importance of, uh, of children's ministry, mm-hmm. of having mm-hmm. like a robust ministry program, uh, teaching children, mm-hmm. um, you know, the truth of, of the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, like even from a reform perspective, like mm-hmm. our, our services, um, you know, even though my sermons were shorter, mm-hmm. you know, I taught them biblical theology, covenant theology. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, I 
it, it had benedictions at the end. So the services were modeled after uh, kind of reform yeah. worship services, yeah. and yeah. the topics that covered in the in the teaching, uh, you know, covered the gamut of you know what what you you would hear in, in yeah. adult sermons. Yeah. Uh, mm. Nice. Um, I remember, yeah, just on and off seeing you, um, cause I was in Florida at the time, but we would come up for the Presbytery meetings mm-hmm. and then we, we didn't get to connect all that much, but, but, um, I was always curious as to like, um, the, the, the ministry direction that you're going to go. Cause I also knew that, that creative aspect of your life too. Cause you also designed that one t-shirt for the, the next retreat. Yeah, I, right. I think the, the when it first started, I, I designed the T-shirts for several years. Oh, and you also did? Okay. did the videography. So there right. were like... Yeah, Cause so I, I remember just that one one T-shirt, one year. I think it might have been my first or second year doing the next retreat. Um, you did this, I don't know if it was the Transformer robot or... Oh, it was a, a Gundam. Gundam, a Gundam okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's way cooler. Uh, <laughs> And I was like, this is the coolest retreat t-shirt ever. Um, and somebody told me, oh, yeah, one of the pastors designed this. I was like, no way, because this is, this is like a professional-grade kind of design. I was so impressed. So, I, so ever since then, I was just always wondering, like, um, will Paul be doing more creative things? Because I know he's gifted in that. Or is he, you know doing ministry more mainly and, and I have friends like that I have musician friends who are pastors right um, just pastors who are gifted in different things who sometimes they have their hand in both sometimes like they navigate those things seasonally so I was just always curious like the direction that you were you know uh, feeling led towards and um, so tell me about just your current role at your church right now I uh, I'm at Open Door Community Church, which is a PCA church in the Georgia Foothills, Foothills Presbytery. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that that church has a very storied history. Mm. Uh, started in the early 90s, uh, very consciously as a, a church for second-generation Korean Americans. Yeah. Uh, apart from, like, independent from... There's like no KM. A, yeah, independent from a first-generation Korean church. And, yeah. You know, talking to others in the Presbytery, like... Uh, Pastor Paul Chi, who's been doing pulpit supply for yeah. us, you know, said that that may be like the first, you know, it's the first example he knows of of an hmm. independent hmm. Uh, Korean American church, not just in Atlanta, but even uh, just in, 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 the the country. C- in the country. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So that's how it it, it started. Um, mm. I started attending there after I stepped down from my position at NCA. This was mm, early mm, 2014, mm. Um, mm. and you know, my family immediately. Um, uh, felt that God was calling us to that church as a, as a church home, mm-hmm. and so we've been there since. Uh, my family, they were able to become members sooner than me, and for me, because of my status within uh, the presbytery, right. I, I was a member of the presbytery. You know, right. I, I couldn't become a member of the church. I couldn't yeah. become an elder, so eventually what I yeah. did was, uh, uh, several years after that, I uh, I was still a member of the Korean Southeast Presbytery, so right. I uh, appeared at Presbytery and asked to demit my credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just like Machen, and they're, they're going to defrock me. So, but <laughs> not for any particular, like, uh, for nothing like standard conviction. Yeah, yeah but uh, the reason was, uh, and it wasn't called defrocking, and uh, mm-hmm. the way I was advised, it, uh, I was advised to 
demit my credentials, uh, mm-hmm. so I would no longer be uh, a mm-hmm. member of the presbytery or, or a teaching elder, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that freed me up to become a member of the church and uh, a ruling elder at uh, Open Door. And yeah. it's been it's been three years since I've been. I, th- I think three. I've been a ruling elder for three years, and the joke I make is that, you know, I was a teaching elder and ruling elder, so I'm like. Deion Sanders or, or Bo Jackson, some uh, a two sport. Yeah, but, um, that's the only sports reference you'll hear from me. So please don't ask me anything else about team sports. But, yeah. um, but I'm sure that wasn't an easy process for you. Um, like what it or was it? No, okay. no. Uh, that I think after stepping down from my position here, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a pretty challenging time in my life. Uh, you know, I think with, you often find with pastors um, that can subconsciously happen is a lot of their identity, not even just pastors, but a lot of your identity is tied up mm-hmm. into your, your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's especially true for pastors. And yeah. I thought that, you know, I'm not a pastor anymore. What what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there were other stressors in my life. Um, uh, I was, af- at, after that point, uh, stepping down, I was a stay-at-home dad for two years. My mm-hmm. children were uh, like, uh, newborn and mm-hmm. two years old at, the, at that point. Mm-hmm. So that combined with kind of this crisis of I- identity and occupation after stepping down, and mm-hmm. I did go through you know, a, a season of pretty severe d- depression, hmm. uh, all the while still uh, attending church and trying to navigate all those things and, hmm. and raising a family. Yeah. And, uh, but then, yeah, that was a process of, you know, coming to terms, you know, uh, you know, after stepping down from NCA, I didn't feel a strong calling to go back into full-time pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I attended, uh, open door and uh, continue to, you know, to grow and navigate through mm. things there, mm. uh, felt that. Mm. Uh, stepping down or demitting my credentials as uh, uh, a full-time uh, teaching elder mm-hmm. was where I was being called and to become a, a ruling elder at, mm-hmm. at that church. Mm-hmm. Um, so that probably took, uh, you know, maybe four or five years mm. to the point of, you know, demitting the my credentials, uh, going through um, elder training, and then mm-hmm, being installed mm-hmm. as a ruling elder at 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 Open Door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was there at the presbytery meeting. Oh, when when you came on the floor to yeah, um, I remember uh, I seeing uh, Elder Kang and Elder Shim. Uh, yeah, and they were, you know I know there was yeah that was difficult uh, you know seeing my brothers there and kind of their heartfelt plea to to reconsider. But them also acknowledging a couple of them, yeah. They, not, not all of them, yeah, but, yeah. but they acknowledge the circumstances and my mm-hmm. intentions, and you know they they you know I, I guess allowed that motion to pass. Yeah. Or yeah, um, I just I guess just to share how I process that, and I still think this. I'm still thankful that uh, you're equally committed to your church. And you're serving as an elder. And the beautiful thing about the role of an elder in the PCA is the, the principle of parity, where you know, whether you're ruling elder or teaching elder, you you hold a vote in the session, and you're an elected officer by the church. And um, I I don't think you can say one is more committed to the church than the other. Um, and so to see you serving in that role as a ruling elder, um, and in a way 
paving a way for the second gen EM members to yeah become uh, those qualified men who can one day be elected as officers. And you don't necessarily have to go to seminary and become a pastor to be an elder. I think that's that's great. Uh, and so I'm thankful for your example and your presence there. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, at the time I said if I ever felt uh, called to go back into full-time ministry, I would submit myself you sure, know, to right. the licensure and right. ordination process right. again. But right. yeah. at that time, you know, I felt that uh, yeah. you know, serving my church as, as a ruling elder is where I was being called and yeah. you know, went through kind of the due process yeah. to, to do that in an yeah. orderly fashion. Yeah, and, and vocationally you were also kind of making those, uh, you're transitioning into the, the, the voca- vocational role that you're in right now, too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 2015, um, yeah, went back into, you know, full-time work as a, yeah. as a product and industrial designer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. Uh, do you do you see yourself kind of interacting with as you do the creative stuff in your work? I'm curious, like, does your theological knowledge training does that come into play? Does that kick in as you're, let's say, you're building a toy? Um, I'm so curious just to know, like. How does any aspect of Reformed theology or biblical theology or systematic theology uh, come into play, even maybe on a subconscious level, maybe not like as you're doing it, but where do you see the overlap or the relevance or or is there, you know? Yeah, yeah on a practical level, like what I'm constantly conscious and aware of is that you know, all work is is calling. Mm. Uh, you know, I, th- I think you had this discussion on uh, a previous episode that you know it's that that concept from Luther that you yeah. know, vocation is is calling as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's something I wrestle with every day because uh, not not everything about my job is ideal, and I have to remind mm. remind myself constantly: this is not just a job; this is a calling, mm. and to pursue excellence mm. in that, you know, no matter how mundane or menial yeah. uh, the task, uh, you know, a lot yeah. of my uh, work does, you know, is involved with like design and even for those things, uh, you know, to pursue excellence, not just yeah. to phone it in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think besides Reformed theology, I, I think a lot of that ethos was also, you know, inspired by, you know, I'm a big Apple guy. I've been a, a huge Apple fan for you know decades and it was actually mm, uh, before what, it got yeah one of my first with the... first youth pastors said you know this is like apple max are uh for four designers and like the way they're designed the way that they're yeah. used is yeah. um he's kind of revolutionary so mm-hmm. i um was a, a diehard apple fan back in the day and a mm. steve jobs fan and i think mm. his impact on product design and mm. you know with however problematic and toxic he, he was he did have a huge impact on the mm-hmm. landscape of consumer products mm-hmm. uh, and so his thing was you know part of the way he was was he was driven by excellence mm. and even going so far as to designing things beautifully like the internals of, of a product because mm. uh, like his father had taught him he was his father was a mechanic and kind of hobby craftsman said like even though you can't see like 
the back of a bookshelf or a wardrobe, hmm. do those things with care because hmm. you'll know that they're there. Hmm. You know, and extending that to, um, you know, Christian worldview is like God sees those things. Yeah. So even those things that you can't see that other people right. don't yeah. see, yeah. even yeah. design setting that people would never right. look at, you know, creating something like a label or a sticker on yeah. the underside of a product, you know, yeah. do those things with care and excellence because, yes. yeah. um, you know, that, that's, we're, we're called to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Um, I think, I think two, I think you summarize like two big principles. I think we as Christians should always take into our vocational context. One being quorum Deo, do it before the Lord. And so it becomes a matter of faithfulness and not people pleasing and, doing for people's approval per se and then the other being yeah uh do your work to the best of your ability as a way of loving serving your neighbor like i feel there's a starbucks i go to near our area i don't know if it's close to actually our area both of our area on pib right by the mathnasium um and dunkin between the dunkin donut and the the mathnasium or or t-mobile but that Starbucks store is my favorite one in this area because they're consistently excellent. So when I when I get my cappuccino with classic, like I know what I'm getting. Uh, whereas other stores aren't as consistent, you know. Um, and so just their commitment to that consistency and excellence, you know, I feel as a neighbor, very well served, loved in a sense, right by the and of course by God who sustains everything and everyone to right, hand us these things. So um, to be instrumental in the things we do that way, um, I think that's so key and, and important. And therefore, it is sacred. It's not secular um, in the, in the typical, typical way a lot of people mean by, by secular. Um, and also going back to what you were saying earlier, I, I totally agree as pastors, like we... Uh, we have to like, I think regularly ask ourselves that question. Um, who am I apart from this job title of a pastor or this calling of a pastor? What is what does my faith look like? And um, my spirituality look like if I was just a regular attendee at church and not a pastor? Um, yeah, I, I think there was a time I had to really wrestle with that. But it, it felt like it's such a healthy process of coming to grips with my truer or deeper identity. Because uh, it can't be your job title. We really can't. Uh, it can't be your, your even your calling to be a pastor. It's got to be more basic and fundamental than, than that. Um, and I think for, a, for the first few years, at least, I think... I was building so much of my identity around my title as a pastor. And it was like, I'm first a pastor and then maybe like a husband and a, a parent and and then somewhere down your child of God. Or something. Yeah, I think unconsciously, like since, um, you know, going into full-time ministry and being young and kind of uh, navigating these things without... Uh, a lot of intentionality. It just mm-hmm. like subconsciously happened that, you know, I just confused, you know, ministry activity for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spiritual growth and, and, and mm. faithfulness and mm. not taking a hard look at those things, which, mm. you know, stepping down from 
my full-time ministry position kind of forced me to do and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel that, um, as with many things, you know, through a difficult process of, of soul searching and God leading you through yeah. different seasons, you know, yeah. coming out at the end with a, a more uh, robust and, and grounded faith. Yeah, yeah. And I think it gives. I think that gives you then also the the patience to figure out some of the other stuff too. It's like because the other identity markers, not a fundamental identity, but like things that make up who we are, like being Korean American or being a second generation or one point five, whatever it may be. I think you can process that more patiently and more maybe soberly when you're already kind of rooted and at peace with God, mm-hmm. and that's where your fundamental identity is and understanding. Nowhere else will, will I be as home as I am with God. Then I think you can start wrestling with these sort of. Um, so so about that, like I want to ask you, because you were raised in that more the Korean church context, right? What what was your church like in in Massachusetts? Yeah, I, it was definitely more. Um... When I was born and in all my time at, in Massachusetts, we attended a Korean Methodist church. Okay. Um, yeah. Did they have an EM as well? Or? Okay. No, they had, it was, I think, primarily Korean speaking. So the, okay. the, the Korean community up there was not large. Gotcha. Okay. So I think this was like the only Korean church I knew of in the area. Um, so you had to attend just the Korean service with your parents or with no, your No, there were separate... Um, you know, education, Youth. you know, there was a, a Sunday school. Uh, I think I remember during that time, while the adult service was happening, uh, there would okay. just be Sunday school. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So, you know, it was definitely more of a first-generation Korean context. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. lots of second-generation students and, and yeah. children who are, okay. you know, primarily English-speaking. Right. And, yeah, I remember our, our Sunday school classes were, were taught in English using, like, uh, like English David Cook curriculum, like back okay. then. Uh, okay. Uh, that was kind of a, a hallmark of my childhood. Okay. You know, in, in addition to attending sun, uh, yeah. Korean school at the yeah. church on, on, on Saturdays. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So for my early years up until, um, you know, I was like 12 or 13, had attended that Korean Methodist church. Um, and there was no, even when I got into middle school, there was no real youth group, so to speak, but mm, I think mm. towards the end, uh, they had asked for some college-age volunteers, I think, who went to school in, mm. in, in Boston, mm. and they kind of became like the uh, de facto uh, youth leaders, but mm. then at that point, I, I, I had moved. And then and then NCA, uh, a more, I guess, more well-rounded kind of immigrant church with KM and EM and all that stuff. Yeah, which was at the beginning. Uh, yeah, from the very beginning, there wasn't. Uh, yeah, uh, right at the maybe not at the founding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, since the time I had attended, there there was a separate EM service. Uh, okay. So at first, I had just kind of attended with my mom, mom, mom and brother to the okay. KM service, but yeah, then found yeah, out, oh, yeah. they have an yeah. EM as well. Why yeah. don't you go there? Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and I can't remember just the exact exact timeline, but I mm-hmm. think um, Pastor C J Chun he was brought on pretty early mm-hmm. to head up the English mm-hmm. ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started attending mm-hmm. the English ministry and that kind of grew. And there yeah. was, uh, you know, there was a, uh, an EM that met at the, the main campus. Mm. And then he also started a more 
college-focused ministry that mm, met closer mm. to Emory, and you know mm, I was attending mm. and involved with uh, both of those gotcha, gotcha. both of those services. So, and now you're at a entirely second-gen, yeah, right, English-speaking congregation. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I'm curious to just hear from you. Yeah, what's the <clears throat> What's like the real benefit of that? Like, what's how's that been a blessing? Just being an independent, like, uh, second gen focused kind of a you know, church plant, um, and how are you enjoying that? You know, with your family, and and at the same time, are there aspects of the the Korean church, like the first gen being present, being a neighbor? Uh, are there aspects of that that you miss? If so, what? I, I just want to hear how you're weighing these experiences and. Yeah, yeah. So I said, my my wife is not Korean. Right. Uh, she's yeah. Chinese American, second generation Chinese. Does she American. speak Chinese? Yeah, she, she Mandarin speaks, or uh, Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Her her mom speaks Cantonese and Mandarin. Is from more the southern part, Hong Kong, and oh, her okay. father uh, eventually settled in in, in Taiwan. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, I know you you grew up in, so they, in, uh, in Hong, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they seem to have experiences with all three parts of like the Yeah, with mainland, mainland China, Taiwan, uh, and Hong Kong, Kong and, and and Taiwan. That's fascinating. Uh, okay. But yeah, yeah so in in my time here, my wife was never fully comfortable cuz I think her church experience was attending uh, you know, uh, white Caucasian churches in in, in the rural south mm-hmm. and that's what she was familiar with. So huh. Just coming into, even for her, attending the EM service at at, at NCA was disorienting. She sure. was not used to being around so many Asian people, <laughs> even if they are English speaking. But right. then when I came on staff here and uh, was more involved with the Korean Korean ministry, it, yeah. it was uh, kind of e- even more bewildering. Like she would share that you know people, uh, you know people at the Korean church on the KM side were very. Welcoming and accommodating, given uh-huh. you know you know my status as an intern and mm, later a moksanim, mm. uh, you know they would try to uh, uh, approach her and speak to her in Korean, but she <laughs> did not not understand, and they just kind of assumed she was Korean. Yeah. And, and and thankfully, yeah. uh, I don't think the church ever placed on her, you know, the same expectations of uh, a Korean homonym. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So I, I was thankful for that, but. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. At uh, when we started attending Open Door, them being uh, starting out as mm-hmm. a second generation Korean American, later Asian American church, mm-hmm. it was uh, mm-hmm. you know a culture and setting that was more comfortable to her, and that that was a, yeah. a big reason for us staying mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the point we started attending, it was uh, it had transitioned to being more just Asian American rather than specifically yeah. Korean, Korean American. Uh-huh. American. Uh-huh. Uh, lots of um, Couples and families who are similar like us with uh, a Korean mm. spouse or mm-hmm. a Chinese spouse or mm-hmm. spouse of a, another mm-hmm. ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so we, we felt immediately drawn and, and comfortable mm. there. Mm. Uh, and I think also being in an English language uh, presbytery um, was also a, a big change for me because, mm. you know, NCA and where yeah. I had been ordained come up was the Korean Southeast Presbytery, mm-hmm. primarily Korean-speaking. Mm-hmm. My Korean is very, uh, uh, at a very elementary level. Mm. So all the business, the proceedings, we just kind of went over my head. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is that strong EM contingent there that still tried mm-hmm. uh, tried their best to mm-hmm. navigate and work alongside our yeah. Korean-speaking brothers. Yeah. Um, so I th- thought for my future growth and potential future involvement, uh, 
Mm. You know, being in an English language presbytery uh, was, you know, a, a better Makes fit for sense. me. Makes more sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, in terms of your demographic at church, so is it, would you say it's more like even among like Korean Americans and Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans, so forth, Vietnamese American, or is there like a majority Korean American presence with other Asian Americans? Yeah, I think still, um, it's still predominantly uh, Korean American with the balance being mm. Asian Americans of, of different ethnicities. Mm, mm, uh, mm, mm. But, you know, it's, um, you know, that's changed from the church's inception, which was mm-hmm. primarily focused on second-generation Korean American mm-hmm. college students. Yeah. And yeah. as the church grew and, you know, the kind of the vision and the demographics changed to yeah. what it is now. Yeah, yeah. So you don't bust out the kimchi every Sunday? and uh, No. Um, yeah, like when we used to have regular lunch fellowships, yeah. it was uh, a pretty broad representation of uh, there's actually like subs and casseroles yeah i'd say like (laughs) we we very rarely had you know uh, had korean food but yeah i I think for some special occasions we would get Mm, you know mm. catered korean food with like the chop chen bulgogi and other Uh you know standards uh of Uh you know catered korean functions yeah Um, yeah but i think uh just you know by nature of mostly everyone being second generation Asian Americans and not mm-hmm, even Korean Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> oh, that's great. That's that's encouraging to hear. And I think I see some similar maybe pattern even in REM as well. Um in the sense that it's becoming less and less Korean American per se and more if anything Asian American. But even there it's like that's that's also it's a little elusive. I mean what is what does it mean to be an Asian American church? I don't even know if there's a clear defining, right? So is that kind of self-conscious uh, on, on your part, or is that kind of how things have developed? I think it's just how things have developed. <laughs> um, I'm not the... I, I respect so much my pastor friends who have, like, this vision statement, and then they just go after that. Like, they have this target group, or, you know, and they just they either plant a church around it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was just coming in here thinking whoever's here, whoever walks through our doors. And I and I first anticipated it to be the typical sort of, oh, the children of the GAM would come to EM, that kind of thing. Um, and that has not been even half of our group. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing you share that a lot of the people coming lately are for people from different contexts, not really connected y- with the Korean church. And- yes, yeah. A lot of them... Uh, gone through have gone through sort of a de-churching process too mm-hmm. after college or during college and then now entering adulthood kind of tiptoeing back into church and kind of wondering is this a safe place where i can you know uh build my spiritual life again or my family's spiritual life um it did start off though with most majority korean americans mm-hmm. And that's something that my wife and I found fascinating too about Atlanta Korean Americans. They are very uh, culturally like um, adaptable. Like they seem to be fairly fluent in Korean, uh, like communicating with their parents, but then they have a very distinct second gen identity uh, and comfort level. Um, it did start off with that, but then we also started to get. Um, 
Korean Americans who don't really feel all that Korean. Like my wife, she's she's Korean American technically, but um, barely speaks any Korean. She grew up speaking English with her parents. I feel like she's more third gen than second gen in some ways. Um, she's super interested in Korean culture, food, K drama, all that stuff. Way more than I am. Um, but it's funny, like when <clears throat> we were down in Orlando and um, we we're doing more of a rural Korean church kind of mm-hmm. context, right? Um, you know, they they didn't like pressure or anything, but they noticed. Oh, she has no nunchi. <laughs> she has. Uh, she. We cannot impose our Korean expectations on on Lin's harmony because she's not Korean at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and and there are times when Lin would be like, "I wish I knew more Korean so I would understand this better." And I told her, "You know, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I think you might be in that perfect sweet spot where um, you can just be yourself, <laughs> and people are like." Let's let her be. Kind of yeah, thing. I think that's kind of kind of my wife's experience too. Uh, yeah, um, it, 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 even it was for me, worse because because like for Lynn, it was in a way, it it's the Koreans' homonym expectation. Mm-hmm. Like if that's put on anyone, I feel like it's a burden on anyone. Yeah, it could be worse though if you are Korean. <laughs> There's this expectation. Of, oh, you should know this. You're you're, yeah, you're one yeah. of us. Um, and and kind of had to remind people, or people had to find out one way or another. Um, even though this person is Korean American, um, we cannot expect the same things we might expect from a Korean person. But sorry, what were you? Go ahead. No, I was saying like uh, as much as that was uh, my wife's situation. I think that kind of uh, extended to me as well. Like the mm. the standard expectations of what. Um, a pastor in mm-hmm. a first-generation Korean American church mm. should be mm-hmm. was not played because they. Mm-hmm. I had grown up in the church. They mm-hmm. knew that I was mm-hmm. more culturally second-generation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, not primarily Korean-speaking. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. in that way there was a lot of yeah. uh, grace and extended a lot of co- accommodation mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. me, like mm-hmm. knowing knowing who I mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. I think I definitely see um, from. I mean, when I started coming under care, it was about 11 years ago, um, 10 years ago. I definitely see changes in um, our Korean churches and, and culture, presbytery culture, um, good changes. Um, I, I, I tell my friends, pastor friends, like, I feel like when I hear the stories of, and I don't know if this is true for you, maybe you can fill, fill me in on this, our Korean American TEs or REs who are in the Anglo Presbyteries, their role there may be more uh, in in the realm of representation. Whereas for us in the Korean language Presbytery, I feel like our role is still reformation. Mm-hmm. Korean churches still need reform. Yeah. And I still I'll see a lot of room for that, but also the good news is I see reform. I, I see change. I see... Um, the effort to try to do more according to the BCO or um, uh, hold on to our title or role as elders in a more biblical way rather than a traditional sense, what what that looked like. And membership, the meaningfulness of that and the their process of nominating, electing um, their officers being more in line with scripture rather than with just this function, mm-hmm. this this behavioral thing at church. Like I see these 
things happening. It's slowly happening, but it's happening. Um, and that excites me just as someone who's part of this Korean language presbytery to see that kind of reformation take place. Um, whereas I feel like the, the task would be different if I was part of an Anglo presbytery then, because a lot of the conversations I have with my wife, PCA pastor friends, or, or even African-American pastor friends is representing our culture to them, mm -hmm. our church to them, our people to them, so that they understand the more nuanced things that go on in a immigrant church context or second generation context. But we're not, we're not wrestling necessarily with uh, tradition versus theology or that kind of thing. I mean, um, that's where you're agreed largely, I think, mm -hmm. about this is the, like Mandalorian, this is the way. Yeah. Um, whereas we still have discussions about what is the way in the Korean language. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. I, I definitely, uh, I've definitely observed those things as well. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. even in the history of NCA, uh, mm. when we first started, we were... Mm. Uh, mm. I don't think we even, uh, the church even called itself Presbyterian. It later joined the PCA. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like actually, you know, the EM, uh, Pastor CJ was, uh, joined the PCA first, and then mm. Pastor Bill uh, joined mm. later. So mm. Mm. yeah, definitely saw like the, the you know, the, the changes taking place, uh, mm. observed those things happening within our own church as mm. we, you know, committed more to uh, reformed mm. ideals mm, and Presbyterian mm, mm. polity. Mm. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that's that's continuing and there's yeah. still, you know, growth in that area. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do want to give props to, like, well, both sides. On the one hand, these EM guys, second-gen um, elders in our Presbyterian who uh, have really, I think, learn to communicate the truth in a gracious way to our KM brothers. And also I want to give props to our KM brothers who um, um, have either evolved or have joined our presbytery over the you know, past few years who have been, yeah, stating this in a way that is more understandable to the KM context, right? Um, stating the importance of doing things according to the word, doing things according to the BCO, and presenting that in a in a winsome way and a respectful way, which is a big sort of a key to the Korean language, is the respectfulness, right? Um, even in the midst of disagreement, how do you present your case in, you know, Peter says, present the hope you have with gentleness and respect. And I feel like the, the Korean translation of that as in contextually, would be present the the case that you have with gentleness and extra respect, or like yeah, like deference. <laughs> extra, yeah, be because we're trying to be all things to all people, mm -hmm. right? And so just to see that effort on the part of the second gen brothers and the, even the one point five first gen KM pastors to uh, reform, you know, and 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 make the case for a bib more biblical way of. Know, going about our polity, that's been encouraging to see. Um, for some folks, I think the change may feel too slow or frustratingly mm -hmm. slow, but I think maybe I guess that's why I'm in the presbytery I'm in, where um, even if it is slow, it feels like turning the Titanic around, I'm still encouraged to see it. 
Yeah, so. I mean, I, I do see a lot of parallels uh, in the relationships there, even with like a parent-child relationship mm, uh, between mm. generations. Uh, yeah. You know, my time in the Korean Southeast Presbytery, you know, I there was never a lack of affection. I always felt the hand of fellowship extended. <clears throat> and, you know, again, like maybe it was kind of a, per, a paternal affection from first generation to second generation, but there was mm, still, mm. despite the challenges, there was a commitment there. Mm. There was a, a love and respect. And, mm. you know, I think that's what I appreciated that, mm. uh, you know, despite the, the challenges and the difference, there was a commitment to, to work together and to mm. minister together mm. and to seek uh, greater obedience and faithfulness from mm. from both the first generation and and second generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it is a lot. Uh, I think a lot of things you shared. It's you know for any second generation kid uh, navigating their relationship with a first generation parent. Mm. There's like a, a lot of yeah. overlap. Yeah. a lot of parallels. Yeah, um, I like and I like working with that. I think that's why I'm where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I. I it's not even I don't mind working through some of those generational terrains or counseling a second-gen EM member about how to draw near to their first-gen parents, how mm-hmm. to love them, that kind of stuff. I, I love having those conversations. It's not that I don't mind it. I actually enjoy it. I think part of it is because it does remind me of my own relationship with my folks mm-hmm. and the challenges that were there, the testimony that came out of that, um, and how that's, I mean, for a lot of us, that's that's still an ongoing challenge and going part of the story. And I think it, it can be a beautiful thing for the church to walk through that together. Oh yeah, um, definitely. And God, God uses different means to comfort us and encourage us and in authoring our stories um i think i think there's still a place for a lot of people uh for the church to accompany them on this on this journey um of not just getting along with but how to love like being discipled into loving your first-gen parents Mm -hmm. um even as you heal from and recover from things from the past and um yeah i feel like that's that's got to be a lifelong journey right that's got to be oh yeah for sure a long process uh yeah for uh, i think a lot of people maybe those things never even get resolved Uh, but when you extend that analogy to presbytery you know maybe Mm. those things won't be resolved over the course of a a decade but Mm. that commitment is 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 still there uh and it's it's still a f- those relationships are yeah. affirmed yeah. um you know yeah. I, I think that that is um, you know glorifying and encouraging right yeah yeah um it requires a lot of grace a lot of uh grace and kindness and patience and endurance to hold on to these tensions and mm-hmm. um but uh but maybe that's also what makes the church beautiful too it's uh we're not unified through compatibility per se but more through a covenantal mm-hmm. commitment to one another and one lord one faith right um yeah cool um i have i have a couple other questions i really want to ask you but sure. I, I don't want to hog all the questions so feel free oh, it's like okay. if you have I, I did have to note um 
this was on my mind. I think I'm the first guest that does not have a PhD, so you're kind of slumming <laughs> Wait, it here on. with me. Hold on. Uh, Phil, I believe, has a PhD. Uh, <laughs> Roger also, and uh, uh, you know, Pastor Danny. Pastor also. Danny. Just, yeah. Well, I don't have a PhD. Okay. So, so <laughs> we're more like um, peers. <laughs> we're, yes, yes. This is this is where we we're finally eye to eye. Um, but you went to Georgia Tech, so that's pretty much a PhD. <laughs> Um, now I was going to ask you, um, going back to just your interest in screenwriting and your interest in film, mm -hmm. are, are you still like a big movie fan? And yeah, pretty big, uh, movie buff. Um, and yeah, also enjoy, uh, like all kinds of entertainment media, uh, writing. Um, do you, do you, uh, cause I, I'm, I love movies. But I've always struggled with Christian movies, mm -hmm. or just just Christian media as a as yeah. a whole. Like how how do you understand that? Like why why is the so called the Christian genre sometimes so aesthetically and artistically <laughs> bad? <laughs> Well, I, I, think I can't it's, think of a, a better word. I think it's, you know, resources. Like you have, you know, Christian media uh, up against, uh, you know, secular media and entertainment. Like the scale of mm. resources there and the talent is just, uh, it's, hmm. it's on a different level. Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, Christian filmmakers, people in Christian entertainment, they have the same desire for excellent and creating a, a good product. And this is not to say that, People making Christian movies are not talented, uh, but there is definitely uh, a difference in the scale of resources poured hmm. in and, and devoted to that. Um, and I, I think that does, you, you see that the evidence and the, the outworking hmm. of that. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, there, there are kind of those outliers like Veggie Tales that have had mm -hmm. kind of this cross uh, cultural uh, appeal. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. um, you know, is recognized, uh, you know, and enjoyed by Christians and, and non-Christians as, mm. as, as well. Uh, but again, like even looking at production values, it's, you know, comparing VeggieTales to like a, a Pixar movie, there's uh, a marked sure. difference in quality, yeah. and that's yeah. just uh, based on, on resources. I'm, one, I'm just wondering, though, like, because there are low, lower-budget indie films in the so it's just secular like Hollywood that that tell the story and, and, and the way they act it out, right? In a very compelling, moving, artistic way. And it's not it's I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just not well versed in the how the resources are spent on this, but it doesn't seem to me like it's a blockbuster kind of like investment. It it can be a fairly minimal simplistic mm -hmm. kind of you know indie movie and it's still very excellently you know done um or do we have to like wait for someone like martin scorsese to make a movie like silence which i thought was a very compelling you know faith-based movie um uh what i'm trying to think of another one uh, more of a recent there's there's one there's there's a movie called Calvary. I don't know if you've seen that one. Mm -hmm. It's about a, a priest who uh, 
lives on this remote, like I think Scottish island, and uh, with his small parish, and it's 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 like a interesting spiritual drama slash sort of mystery crime mystery. But uh, the writing was for me what made the film. It's the script. It's the dialogue. It's the. But it happens in like I feel like it. There's like three settings where this goes down. The whole movie, right? Uh, there's a pub. There's a beach. There's the church. <laughs> That's pretty much. It. I felt it was lower budget. It felt felt like a indie kind of movie, but um, just one of my favorite faith-based movies. Um, and then there's the God's Not Dead series, <laughs> right? I don't know, like five of them now? I don't know. Yeah, um, and like the, I guess there are left-behind movies the, and just all, yeah. Um, um, I, I would say, now, I, to, but to your point, um, I think there were more well, better-funded stuff that's been coming out recently that are qualitatively much better not we we're not quite at the mountaintop just yet but you know like the chosen series i think i'm not blown away by it but i've i I saw a few episodes and um yeah yeah uh i see it i see the yeah i think given the nature of uh the entertainment industry i think people even for christians who have talents uh in, in those areas and um want to and have like those kind of creative pursuits, mm. I think they're going to be drawn more to, uh, you know, secular entertainment because that's where the money is and that's kind of where the the talent gathers. Uh, mm. and that's where the, mm. the recognition is. Um, mm. Yeah, and I'm sure, again, that there are many talented people working in Christian entertainment, mm. but it seems like... Uh, most of the talent goes uh, where where the money is, hmm. and you know, just again looking at where resources are allocated, uh, and then hmm. like even for smaller budget films, um, uh, yeah, like in- in- indie productions. Um, I think yeah, for the aspirations of people, uh, yeah, I don't know if I want to frame it like yeah, you know, like no one sets out to be like a famous Christian filmmaker if you're pursuing film like they want mm, to mm. Uh, you know make a, a big budget or a, a yeah. successful commercial yeah I- indie film yeah uh, or you know they they want to like win an oscar mm. or like and not like the christian uh, equivalent mm. Uh, so mm. yeah maybe mm. you see that in in the music industry as well there are many talented christian mm. musicians uh and i'm sure there are people who set out to be uh, establish themselves within that uh, arena, but for mm, mm. like anyone growing up in this country, uh, having aspirations in the entertainment industry, I, I feel like mm. they just naturally gravitate towards, uh, you know, the secular side mm. of that. Mm. Okay, I mean that that's helpful. Just to, I mean, it's helpful just to have that bird's eye view, and, and um, it helps me to be more understanding and maybe gracious towards they're, they're all trying to make a living just and doing yeah. doing what they want to do and um i shouldn't be i probably sounded too harsh <laughs> talking about uh christian movies um but um yeah i'm just because i love movies and and i i also grew up with 
um, I guess that time during early Hollywood too, when uh, America being a like during the '60s, when America was like had that sort of Christian morale like um, seeping into the culture, and so I guess Hollywood just put out a bunch of biblical, you know, narratives mm -hmm. from like Ben Hur and like stuff like that that seems so epic and the Ten Commandments and um, and you know these are these are actually great films but but I, I, I see your point there's the demand right and therefore the resources and the budget and the uh, but that's just not the time we live in now and mm -hmm. um, and even Chosen was like more self-funded right like through right, um, people's giving and whatnot um, but uh, and then I would just see like you know someone like uh, what's his name Aronofsky mm -hmm. who made Noah with sort of the Gnostic kind of yeah. stuff in there um, and 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 Ridley Scott did a Exodus movie that was not, oh yeah I yeah. mean visually it was great but I thought the storytelling was was not one it's not his best um, and I'm like you know we can I mean, there's there could still be a market for it but can we just you know um, tell the biblical story <laughs> um, and, and not throw us any curveballs, you know, um, like the way Noah did or, you know, um, I'm just always hoping for the, you know, the yeah, next I, chariots of fire, the next. Yeah, I think Prince of Egypt, I think the animated yes. was a, a good example. Yes. Of, um, something yeah. that was took great care amazing to, film you know yeah. stay faithful to you know the source material to the the biblical story and yeah. at the same yeah. time commercially successful yes and, yeah. uh the difference was like you know that the funding was dreamworks steven right. spielberg attached exactly. to it a exactly. lot of big name recognizable recognizable voice right. actors right uh, and right. so when you're talking about stuff like ben-hur you know you know charlton heston the the right. a-list hollywood stars yeah uh, and yeah. big budgets and, and, and promotion. Right, uh, right. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever see that again, but we know yeah. it's it's possible. Yeah. Uh, but it's just the way the culture is and the way I, I think the entertainment industry is, It's uh -huh. uh, I think it's an uphill battle to, yeah. to see something like that again. Yeah, yeah. Well, well thanks for indulging me in that because I just wanted to pick your brain about about that and lament with you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, uh, yeah, like, uh, I, I wrote a novel, and I've been in the process That's of trying right. to get that published. And, you yeah. know, I could have, you know, an option was to go to Christian publishers or write uh -huh. a more self-consciously Christian story. Uh, but, um, you know, even there, uh, like, I was leaning towards, or my focus is on, like, uh, established publishers are getting mm. my books into Barnes and Noble or getting mm. on like the New York Times bestseller list. Mm. Um, yeah, and those were kinds of uh, the publishers and imprints that we submitted to things that you would, you know, like uh, the publishers of like the, the Hunger Games or, or Twilight, yeah. you know, submitting to places like that rather yeah. than, you know, like Zondervan or a, a Christian <laughs> imprint. Uh, you know, part of it they is. They don't publish novels, do they? And they Zondervan. might. I, I mean, like whoever publishes like the the Left Behind books or series, or oh, you know, yeah. there are you know Christian fiction so, publishers. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, but you know, I self consciously mm. um, did not submit my work uh, to publishers like that. Mm, Apart mm, it's mm, like mm. there's more money in secular publishing. Mm -hmm, and there's mm -hmm. more 
you know, marketing mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and potential uh, reach, reaching mm-hmm. more uh, a wider audience. Yeah. Tell me about your book. Uh, it's 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 very autobiographical, mm. uh, but you know, being a lover of movies, you know, we grew up. You know, I grew up. You know, mainly eighties, loving movies like Karate Kid, Goonies, mm. and Stand by Me. Uh, you know, even with Classic. Goonies, um, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Kihi Kwan is having you know a, a renaissance, yeah. but yeah. very little Asian representation. Right. And if there was, it's relegated to kind of. Uh, stereotypical characters or, uh, yeah. you know, sidekick type characters. Right, right. So yeah, I wrote yeah. this novel as a way of, you know, these are the kinds of movies and media that I liked. Mm. I want to write uh, a story similar to that, hmm. but with, you know, an Asian American, Korean American lead. Mm, so, mm. you know, my novel, it's called Street Fighting Man. It's essentially nice. Karate Kid meets Crying in H Mart or Karate Kid meets Korean dramas. So, uh, but it's more Street Fighter, the the video game. Yeah, Street Fighter to the video karate game. Kid. So okay. instead of a karate tournament, you have a Korean American kid, uh, you know, going through and entering this uh, Street Fighter two tournament. So oh. it's a very similar arc. You know, yeah. there's like a romance that was subplot. Uh, yeah, and so I think for second generation, not only Korean but Asian Americans, yeah. it's like you know, arcades, video games was a formative. Street part. Fighter two is so iconic yeah. to our generation it's um and and not just like the take home and play but just the arcade version mm-hmm. and um where you still have to like bring your own cash like coins yeah putting your your token put, quarter up, like to reserve next spot you know there's that whole kind of subculture yeah, that that yeah. grew out of the arcade yeah scene. and the glory of just being able to stand there for more than a few rounds <laughs> as people wait for you um because that was that was my so I was exposed to that in Hong Kong and, mm-hmm. and that was huge it was everywhere yeah. and um and I was kind of like sort of forbidden but I didn't care <laughs> I just like had to go uh, every day whenever I could or after church or uh, yeah I mean there there was something that felt a, a little transgressive about you know going to an arcade <laughs> with a bunch of other youth it seemed like a little unsavory yeah. so I can yeah. understand why our yeah. parents might have. Yeah. dissuaded stuff yeah. like that if you were to give me a synopsis mm-hmm. without spoiling of course or or what would be on the back cover of the book um like what in describing the well the story is set yeah. in, in, in so the you 90s, go into the... 1991 when street fighter 2 came out and it's about a korean american boy mm-hmm. who's transplanted to it's literally into the to the south oh um, transplanted to the south after his parents divorce mm. and then uh you know, uh, and as like during that move, uh, he uh, goes to an arcade and finds Street Fighter Two mm-hmm. and uh, romance along the way. But yeah, it's pretty much the the plot of the Karate Kid mm-hmm. melded with Street Fighter Two instead of karate, and with uh, you know, a kind of first generation, second generation Asian American mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. I- identity issues explored mm-hmm. through that. Mm. So it's putting, you have a very 80s, 90s kind of story, yeah. but with an Asian American yeah. lead. It's so interesting. Uh, so it's. Is it out? No, it's, I'm still it's, it's, okay. seeking. Like publishing is a very slow business. Mm. So even if the book were to sell, it'd be two years before you'd see it on, wow. on shelves. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. Things in publishing just take a while. So wow. I'm still in okay. the process of getting uh, it picked up by. Uh, a publisher and but in terms of editing all that that's done 
uh, on my end. Okay. Uh, so what you do is, uh, if you want to go into, you know, fiction or nonfiction publishing, uh, what you would do is you, you'd write your book. Mm. You try to you submit your book to literary agents who mm. would represent you. So that's kind of like the first gatekeeper. You, mm. you write a book. You you get an agent to read it and to represent it based mm. on the merits of that, and then. When you work with the agent, the agent submits it to publishers and editors mm. with the hopes that one of them gives you a book deal and, and, and buys it. Mm. Then there's two years of you know more editing mm. Uh, mm. and you know marketing, creating the book cover and things mm. like that, and then you know hopefully two years later after. Do you have a, do you have a cover? Uh, no, no, like that that yeah, happens okay. after after the deal. You know, self publishing is another route, <clears throat> but you know my aspiration was to yeah uh, you know be traditionally published yeah. uh, author yeah. where you can you know go to a library go to Barnes and Noble yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and that's see great. your book that's uh, great how long is the book um uh, page wise maybe it's under 400 pages so it's oh, typical yeah, for like still... a young adult novel uh it's uh word count wise it's like 76,000 words which is okay. typical for you know uh, a book for for teenagers so 300 plus pages of mm-hmm. how long did it take you to write uh, it uh, like five years, which is wow. not uh, uh, just on and off. Mainly, yeah, because it just started off. Uh, I had always had a desire to, you know, write novels for as long as I can remember. Mm. You know, uh, mm. there's something called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, where mm. you know writers will try to write fifty thousand words, a fifty thousand uh, word novel uh, mm. throughout November mm-hmm. and with, with the goal. Uh, yeah. so I did that a couple times. Um, and you know, for me, just like finishing projects was always difficult, but I started writing the story and felt that, you know, there was something, uh, more to it. This is mm. you know, something compelling there. This is something I could finish. So I just mm. kept working on it. Mm. Um, not when I started, not with the intention of being traditionally published or seeing it published but um i just thought you know i'll stick with this through i'll see it through the end and mm-hmm. eventually finish mm-hmm. drafting it and then as i learned more about the publishing industry I thought oh, okay well mm. if i have this book if i want to see it published then i'll need to get a literary mm-hmm. agent mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. do the research on that and uh, i yeah. i did get a literary agent yeah uh, and then you know we've been in the process of submitting it and pitching it to editors at you know people like penguin random house yeah uh, yeah scholastic macmillan yeah so those are kind of like the big five publishing houses yeah and they all have different imprints under them uh when you were writing it did you have a sort of a age group in mind or were you just trying to write it for anyone everyone because you know how there's like you said there's young adult mm-hmm. kind of genre and then there's just yeah usually the the age of the character kind of defines what category it's in like okay. m- middle grade would be uh middle school students like right. grade six through eight yeah. young adult is uh, like high school age mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. You know, ninth grade to twelfth grade yeah and then adult is anything uh, above that and so i mm. very much wanted to write uh you know i i love coming of age stories uh mm. you know like like Stand By Me and like yeah. you know, the kind of the popular yeah. 80s movies and that genre was something I've always been drawn to. So uh, huh. I wanted to write a coming of age story about uh, a teenage Korean American kid. And uh, a lot of the stuff in that in the book I wrote is is you know, autobiographical or, or rooted in, in some 
you know, some real life experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. What What are some of your favorite novels just growing up, um, or just even recent years? What would you consider to be this is a great novel, and I recommend it to anybody who's not read it. Uh, you know, there are standbys like, uh, you know, I grew up reading a lot of kind of the classics like you mm. know, Catcher in the Rye when mm. read it in high school, did not like it, thought it was, huh. you know, overhyped. Oh. And I was like, yeah. like, what is the big deal? But then <laughs> reading it in, in my 20s, I was like, oh, this is, yeah. I, I can see why it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's enduring, mm. uh, why mm. it has kind of this lasting impact. Um, novels by uh, Haruki Murakami, in particular, Norwegian Wood. Uh, novel I greatly enjoyed. Huh. Um, hmm. You know, and I read stuff like, you know, Ender's Game and uh, The Lord yeah. of the Rings growing up, and the kind of things that lots of nerdy, geeky kids tend to read. <laughs> uh, and recently, just uh, I read a lot of, I don't know whether it's due to arrested development or just, you know, a refusal to grow up, but I do read a lot of young adult uh, novels. You know, I read a lot just kind mm -hmm. of. Uh, you know, they say good writers read a lot and you should read yes. in, in, in the genre that you plan yeah, to write in. Yeah, so I've yeah. read a lot of young adult novels. Um, mm -hmm. There's this novel, Eleanor in Park, which I really enjoyed. And it's uh, one of the protagonists is a, a half half Korean American boy. Uh -huh. uh, so his father was like, uh, like a lot of kids I knew, his father was military mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. with a, a Korean mm -hmm. spouse. Mm -hmm. um, and the other protagonist was like they both kind of lived mm. in. It it's, takes place in um, '80s Omaha, Nebraska. Mm. So that's like you know that time period that I grew up with, with the main character that is very familiar or relatable, yeah. someone I can uh, identify with. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I read pretty broadly. Uh, a lot of just commercial fiction. Um, mm. Enjoyed uh, the the book The Martian which yeah. started off as a self-published book. Um, so that mm. author, you know, just published his book on Amazon. It just gained a ton of traction and then was picked up by a traditional publisher. So that, that's kind of like the unicorn uh, path. It, I see. it does happen. I see. I see. Um, but his later, his latest book, Project Hail Mary, was uh, something I greatly mm. enjoyed mm. Um, just, as, just as a work of fun. Mm. Uh, escapist fiction and i think there's a movie adaptation coming out and actually Probably, like yeah. my 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 daughter uh she's 12 now but she read it and you know wow. enjoyed it as as well so does I think she does she read a lot she did she does both my daughters read a lot a lot mm. of fiction you know they went through uh, you know their harry potter phase and mm. hunger games phase mm. my older mm. daughter so mm. she's uh she enjoys uh, fiction she enjoys writing kind of a lot of it's great uh shares a lot of the same creative pursuits as like, you know, me and my wife. Hmm. Hmm. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like, uh, novels, especially classical literature, unless you're like majoring in it or something, that's not just, that's not something a lot of Asian Americans are into. Um, I don't have a lot of conversations with Asian Americans, particularly Korean Americans about like classic literature, mm -hmm. like, and have conversations about themes in Brave New World or uh, the plague, or you know, have, have, and, and then talk about existentialism or or talk about Dostoevsky, or, you know. 
other than how painful it was have to to have to read through some of these things in AP English or something. Yeah, you know, so it's it's just refreshing to hear uh, from someone who's who's and you're not even an English major. No, so uh, so that's fascinating to me that I was forced to kind of be exposed to a lot of this because of my you know major being English. Okay, um, and then I was sort of forced to. So exposure was forced, but then later I became like I started to really enjoy them, mm-hmm. um, even just like Shakespearean sonnets and things like that. Just came to enjoy them at a later time. But yeah, I think that tracks with my experience. But I okay. would say kind of the things that I enjoy. You know, it's it's difficult for me to read and enjoy older works just because you know the time that, that they were written and the pacing. Mm. You know, my sensibilities mm. are definitely mm. more more modern and. Mm. Um, you know, more reflective of kind of uh, mm. a faster-paced culture and an entertainment-driven culture. Mm, um, mm. So then, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just it's because it's. If I feel like if I can read it, anybody can read it, and and it's it's not this kind of nerdy thing that you know a select group of people can enjoy. It's really something anybody can enjoy, and um, and it, I think it does draw out a different like part of us, creative part of us, to talk about fiction, to talk about novels, rather than talking about movies. I think that does one thing. Mm-hmm. Talking about TV shows and movies, that that does one thing. But then to, to talk about books, uh, talk about the characters in the book, that that's a different kind of a conversation, uh, a different kind of an enjoyment for me, I think. Yeah, and I think my draw is just towards, you know, narrative narrative stories in in mm. in general mm. i think a big mm. you know formative part of my f- seminary experience was you know biblical theology mm. uh, mm. like up until going to seminary even being at a presbyterian church uh you know going to seminary i, I learned that i was an arminian and not reformed <laughs> at all um and you know, I, I distinctly remember in high school learning about the Puritans mm. and the doctrine mm. of predestination. I thought, like, what mm. a bunch of mm-hmm. arrogant and self righteous people! Mm. I like, like, no wonder <laughs> they were persecuted. I don't, oh uh, but then going to seminary, it's like, oh, this is uh, this is what our, our our church believes in, and these mm. are uh, mm. this is the, the the doctrine we espouse. But mm. then. Um, you know, along with the theology, learning uh, biblical mm. theology and learning uh, that, you know, all of scripture is cohesive, connective, and there's mm. a, a meta narrative there. Mm. And for me, the draw of fiction is seeing that meta narrative uh, of the gospel, yeah. how that's reflected consciously and unconsciously mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in the stories today. Mm. Um, you know, mm. I know you've touched on this in um, previous episodes, um, uh, previous conversations, but. Yeah, that's why I love stories. Uh, mm, mm, you, know, mm, you know, there's that, uh, I think it's a Richard Pratt book, uh, you know, the title itself is like, he, he gave us stories, meaning God yes. gave us stories. Uh, yes. uh, yeah. And for me, as someone who uh, pursues, you know, creative, um, creative endeavors and mm-hmm. someone who enjoys movies and, and novels, yeah. that that's kind of the lens where I try to, uh, to, you know, consume all, all mm-hmm, these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating if you think about uh, how meta and universal and widespread that is across the board, like whether you call it a 
secular genre of something or it's Christian. Um, with and with the recent whole like this, I don't know if it's a resurgence, but this whole multiverse thing that's been just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the I feel like the epitome of that is everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, because it's like, yeah, now Asians are like, we want a piece of this multiverse thing. <laughs> and so, uh, we, and then and then we get best picture for it. Um, even there, as you're crisscrossing through time and space and multi-time and multi-space, there's you're still wrestling with good and evil. You're still wrestling with love. You're still wrestling with meaning. And uh, it's almost like, because the whole, the the initial sort of the scientific conversation that I was listening to about multiverse was to sort of get out of the this confined like need to find the singular source of our space time matter. It could be that there's this multiverse and we're just one of the many universes, and so our values are not as objective, or mm-hmm. our our existence isn't as meaningful. But we're right back to that, even as we write stories make movies about the multiverse we're still um wrestling with objectivity we're still wrestling with what is truth um and and i and i really enjoyed everything everywhere all at once and what at the end of the day what really stood out to me was um yeah in every single one of those universes right there's love right yeah and it was kind of positioned as this wacky uh you know, like multiverse story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but what I enjoyed most is that at its core was that very relatable and raw, you know, mother daughter story. That story yes. of, of of an immigrant family. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you said, it's ultimately about love, and I think that's why it was successful, despite being this kind of this weird high concept sort of thing. It was grounded in very. There's some. There's some weird, like maybe unnecessarily graphic moments. Um, that was just very in your face, yeah, right? <laughs> but that was tempered by, you know, a yeah. grounded and human family story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, it's still like as Asian Americans, something yeah. that we can, even as Korean Americans, we can yeah. know, relate to. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I think those are the, the kinds of stories I'm drawn to as well, despite mm. any kind of wild or fantastical premise, there is that, you know, that, that very hu- real human element uh, yeah. in drama happening. Yeah. Yeah, we um, were like laughing and crying through that movie in the theater. And recently I ended up rewatching it at home, but it took me a while to like get into that frame of mind, just mm-hmm. be ready to process everything again, because it does get very emotional. Um, and it does, I think, for any immigrant child, uh, it will touch in various ways that you may not be ready for. So you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta be in the right, you can't just be like in a public place watching it on your laptop or something. Cause you know, people are like, people would be like, why are you just bawling in the middle of, you know? Um, cause, cause that would be uncomfortable. Um, th- something like that happened to me recently. I was, I was on a flight back from Korea and it happened to be a funeral trip that I took to, you know, it was my grandmother's funeral. So I'm already kind of emotional mm-hmm. coming back. And uh, it, was, it was a Delta flight coming back. And um, there's this movie on there 
that I've never seen before called Living. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, uh, yeah, Bill I think Nye. I'm... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought it would just be a chill kind of movie to watch. I put on my headphones, I watch it, and I'm sitting in the middle between <laughs> two other passengers, right? But when it gets to that near the end with, with a big reveal kind of series of flashbacks come at you, I just started bawling. But I don't want to like draw attention and white tears and blow my nose and all that because they're just sitting right there doing their own thing. And so I'm just like leaning back as much as I can. I'm just letting the tears come down <laughs> and I'm pretending like it's not there. But I'm trying to keep, I'm keeping a straight face while ugly crying. That movie I thought was incredible. Um, and it to me still is like, a perfect movie. Um, I, I have maybe three or four movies I might consider to be like perfect. Um, Mad Max Fury Road would be one. I thought it was, that was a perfect movie. Um, um, I'll, I'll go all the way to like, you know, one of the Miyazaki films I consider in my mind to be perfect is Porco Rosso. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the older Miyazaki film not a lot of people know about. And Living. Uh, perfect, perfect movie. And I didn't care I was in public. I just, yeah, just had to like, had a good cry over it. You know? Yeah, and like I, uh, I, I think that's the kind of excellence that, you know, Christians should uh, mm. strive for in, mm. in all their pursuits. And mm. for me... Um, being in a creative field, uh, that's that's aspirational for me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and again, it's about story, uh, telling meaningful stories that speak yeah. to different experiences, and that's kind of the big topic of conversation. Is you know, representation. You know, being in the United States, it's uh, with many institutions, it's been uh, mm. predominantly white, mm-hmm. uh, despite mm-hmm. the the growing demographics, mm-hmm. and so there there's a cry for more representation, more stories by yeah. marginalized identities. Yeah. Uh, so again, for me, self-consciously, I want to write a story that's very familiar, something like Karate Kid, but having that Asian American representation and mm. that, that worldview and, and, and perspective. You know, I, I think there's uh, a market and an audience for it as you know, everything everywhere all at once clearly mm, mm, demonstrated. Mm, mm. Um, if Street fight is it the street fighting man or is it street fighting man? Right, it's a uh, street fighting man, like the, the Rolling man. Stones song. Uh, oh, wait, how's the song go? Uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot of their 60s stuff, but you know, there's uh, street fighting man in the chorus, but uh, it's, it's what's the title? What's the that's not the title of the song, yeah, it? that's the is title it? of the song. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, okay, huh? So, I, I would need some kind, kind of, of uh humongous book deal to get licensing what? rights for that song oh I, so i thought it, i thought the title was more after the video is it or is it both it, it's both and titles okay. both but it, it's okay. also kind of an homage to bruce lee you know like when he was growing up in hong kong got involved in a lot of street fights yeah. uh, you know as he was learning wing chun kung fu and so his parents sent him off to america so yeah. there's a lot huh. of um you know, the philosophy and teachings of Bruce Lee that are part of that story. So it's a reference to gotcha. Bruce Lee. It's a reference to, you know, uh, Street Fighter Two, the yeah. video game. And, yeah. you know, the title's taken from that Rolling Stone song, which doesn't yeah. play as much of a part. But when you think of, like, uh, 
you know, I think this is a story that could be adapted for for film or TV. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had like a soundtrack in mind, and that's mm-hmm. you know that song is you know thematically very very mm-hmm. fitting. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, last question: If Street Fighting Man uh, were to become a movie one day, and you had the choice to cast anyone to be the the lead, oh, let me ask you this: lead actor and you could even pick the director who would you have as director and who would you have as the lead actor uh the lead actor probably have to be like an unknown because it's uh a 15 year old Mm. kid so i don't know many 15 year old Uh, korean american uh, actors gotcha but for like the dad maybe uh, steven yun uh, as the dad yeah uh, yeah I, I was like even joking around like, you could probably take the whole cast of minari and uh put them in that movie <laughs> yeah. you know like the son in there he would be about the right age by the time uh, the movie yeah. is made there's yeah. a grandmother figure in the book so Absolutely. Uh, Yun would okay. be the grandmother and yeah uh, uh the the mom in that book is uh you know a first generation mm-hmm. korean mm-hmm. who immigrated mm-hmm. to oh, so a lot America. of parallels then with, uh, yeah. with minari mm. Yeah, that that was uh, Minari was the kind of rural Midwester mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. In, in in the '80s. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I tried to pack a, a lot of my childhood in there. Mm. Most of the story takes place in the Smoky Mountains near Dollywood, which mm. is like an area that uh, mm. you know has uh, you know special significance for me. Like during mm. my, my my teen years, and, it sounds almost also like what what Spielberg's latest one uh, the. The Alderman or um, the Meet the Fablemans, or Fablemans something like or something. Yeah, yeah it's because um, it's based kind of loosely, but yeah, based on, on his, his life, life experience. And, yeah, you know. I think even his parents' divorce, he said, mm-hmm. which was very formative for mm-hmm, him, was mm-hmm. a big part of uh, of that movie. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. which I've yet to see, but I, I do want to. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I love works that are, you know, kind of self referential in that way. Yeah. And again, a coming of age story. You see yeah, that transition yeah. from. Uh, childhood to reminds me to a lot adulthood. of that movie actually the more i think about it um okay who would you have direct directing uh i would like to have uh you know a, an asian american director huh. so i was thinking yeah like even like the daniels who directed the daniels, uh, yeah. everything everywhere all at once yeah uh, edgar wright who you know directed movies like Shaun of the dead um really hot fuzz uh, scott pilgrim <laughs> and i i think visually uh huh. since um, you know, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is uh, mm. very a visual movie. A yeah. lot of uh, fun, incorporating themes from from video games, yeah, and really I think fun. you know my story being heavily tied to video games as well. And I imagine like a similar mm. visual mm. style. Mm. Wow, that's that's fun. That's fun. I'm just I'm just like trying to imagine the cinematography between the the two because because yeah, you have one thing going with Shaun of the Dead and the hot fuzz thing and then a totally different thing with the the Daniels but I feel like the Daniels would bring out the colors and the visuals of Street Fighter better um, and just go crazy with that um, more than maybe I I really enjoy visual you know filmmakers like like the ones I mentioned but at the same time you know they're very uh, Again, visual filmmakers, visually inventive, but mm. uh, uh, you know the movies they make do have that strong emotional core. Yeah. So I think you know getting that balance is is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, Guillermo 
del Toro, I feel like is mm-hmm. visually just always stunning um, to look at without without like, but it's not like visually stunning in the in the way that it just distracts you. Something like Tarantino sometimes it's just it, it's visually stunning, but sometimes distractingly so. But uh, del Toro still stays focused on the story. Mm-hmm. I feel like the narrative is still very much uh, driving the experience, um, not just the visuals. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Phil that was kind of dunking on Christopher Nolan. Uh, and I, I think I agree, like, uh, the, the concepts and the visual inventiveness is, like, mm-hmm. uh, very elevated top tier, but yeah. uh, emotionally kind of flat and yeah. un- unfulfilling. No, I, I agree. Um, it's like, he doesn't make it easy for the audience to feel everything he's he's conveying. He doesn't... It's not like Spielberg where it's like you've just he just lands you there. Whereas Nolan, he's like, here's a maze, and if you <laughs> if you follow me through this maze, you will land somewhere that's emotionally kind of moving. But uh, it might take you a while. <laughs> I think it's also kind of by design and also his writing. Yeah. Like in, in novels, you have what's called literary novels, which are more kind of about. Mm. you know the beauty of expression mm. and the language and mm. not so much the emotion or or the plot uh, mm. but it's uh, and then you have like kind of uh commercial fiction which is definitely right. about plots definitely about emotions yeah. and yeah. um and i think within filmmaking there are kind of those approaches as well yeah. do you have this high concept kind of auteur who's yeah. you know yeah. uh, has very different objectives mm-hmm, or do you have mm-hmm. kind of more populist filmmakers like Spielberg who are very interested in telling like a, mm-hmm. a human story, mm-hmm. an emotional story, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even eliciting those emotions as as well. You know, I respect both kinds of directors, but I think yeah. in terms of the kind of media I consume, I you know, I, I wanna feel something rather than just yes. kind of impress. Yeah. If if I wanted the more higher concept stuff, I would go to there's a director named Denis Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. Right? And directed Dune. Dune. Yes. Uh, Sicario, uh, Arrival. Um, so to me, he's like he's Nolan esque, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm feeling more with his stuff. Because um, um, I mean, they're working with like I think similar budget. They can do whatever they want visually, kind of thing. But then with with Villeneuve, I feel like um, cinematically, just visually and narrative wise, I'm tracking a lot more. Than with um, than with Nolan, but yeah, I think they have different objectives and sure. things that they do sure. well, and I appreciate sure. all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks. We should we should probably because I can talk about movies like all day, uh, but this has been fun. Uh, I'm going to look forward to your book, man. When it comes out, you got to let us know. Uh, yeah, when I mean, it does. I'll definitely be probably pretty obnoxious about promoting it because yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd love to be able to yeah. get it uh, in more hands and people to read. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Oh no, yeah, it's yeah. fun. Glad you uh, lowered your standards to, to, have, me, <laughs> to have me on here. <laughs> to have a non PhD. Yeah, that was great. Thanks.